We're going to wrap up our series on the Sabbath today. If you want to open your Bibles to Revelation 21, and as we wrap up the series, um, we're going to talk about the new heavens and earth, uh, which is ultimately, that's Sabbath in its final form, sort of. Uh, when we hear the terminology of new heavens and earth, most of us probably immediately think of sort of the end times and Jesus coming back and all that sort of stuff. And ultimately, that's where this is heading. But the new heavens and earth has already begun. It began the day Jesus exited the tomb with resurrection life. The power of darkness and sin and death was defeated that day and then began to fade. Now, I know many of you are probably thinking, fade? Like, evil hasn't faded, it's everywhere. Look around. And that's true. There is a lot of evil in this world. But here's the thing. Before Jesus, evil was in power. In our lives and in the world. But Jesus defeated evil. Right? I mean, isn't that what we believe? If evil is in fact defeated, then its power is fading. I think we like to give evil too much credit, ultimately. I know of churches where they talk about evil all the time. Uh, and I have not done that. Not because I don't believe evil still exists. I absolutely do. I see it regularly and it breaks my heart. But it's not my job to talk about how powerful evil is. It's my job to talk about how powerful God is. About how evil is defeated in us and in the world. To talk about how evil no longer has power over us. Just as Paul wrote in Romans 6.14 saying, For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. The Greek word that Paul used right there is kurieo, and it means authority based on ownership. It was a term used of kings and sometimes nobility for the lands and people that they possessed. In other words, what Paul was getting at is that sin no longer has authority over us. It doesn't own us anymore. It's no longer in power. It's no longer the Lord of the land. We are not slaves to sin and death anymore. But this points us directly to God's Sabbath rest. Because if our enemy is defeated, we no longer have any reason to strive and struggle for survival or salvation. We are free. Free to rest easy in the good pasture of our King. Free to be who we were created to be. Free to live well. To celebrate and enjoy God and each other. And the evidence of this is the Holy Spirit working in and among us and by the fruit of the Spirit that shows up in our lives as a result. So as we come to the end of the book and, and see what John has to say here, but let's keep all of this in mind. If you will, follow along with me. We're going to read in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. And we're going to actually read into chapter 22 a little bit.
Now this is a description that began back in verse 9. He's talking about the different measurements of the, the new Jerusalem, the holy city that we just sang about. Um, and in verse 22 says, I, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so in the ancient world, uh, temples weren't just where people could make sacrifices to their gods. They were kind of a status symbol a mark of identity. They were a way of saying, this is who we are because this is who we serve. And the bigger the temple, the more powerful the God. So when we arrive at the end of Revelation 21, where John has been describing the new Jerusalem, it's actually scandalous that there is no temple. What kind of people don't have a big, glorious temple in their royal city. This is meant to be shocking, to, to wake up the audience and draw attention to it, to make us see that the point the author is making is that the God in question, the God who would be worshipped by this temple, does not need a temple because he is present. Now let me say that again because I think we really need this reality to sink in. Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, does not need a temple because he is present in the new Jerusalem. And before we go any further, we also need to recognize that while, while there will be an ultimate fulfillment of this when Jesus returns, it's already a present reality in at least one very important way. We who have passed through the doorway that Jesus has opened and have found God's Sabbath rest, just as we have taken up residence in the house of God, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. <coughs> we are the dwelling place of the Lord. Each of us, and all of us together, which means the new Jerusalem has already begun, begun to descend from heaven to earth, the picture that's drawn in the first part of this passage, where the city just sort of comes down from heaven and earth, reuniting the two. That's already started 
in us. The new heavens and new earth has been launched. And it's a reality within each and every one of us. This is why I often talk about us being the place where heaven and earth meet. And this is why there is no need for a temple. The Lord is present and active in each of us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is transforming us from old to new, removing our oppressor and offering us a liberator, taking us from slaves and making us into brothers and sisters. All of this is already a reality. But the absence of the temple isn't the only shocking thing. The city is also described as needing no sun or moon to shine in it. And the reason given is that the glory of the Lord gives it light and that its lamp is the lamp. Now this is all figurative language and we know that God as light is about God bringing light into our lives so that we can see. That's sort of the spiritual realities and everything. That's an echo, though, of, of what we read in Genesis 1-3, where the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. God brought light into the darkness. The same thing is happening in our lives in this New Jerusalem sort of language. It's already been launched in us, and, and God has brought light into our darkness, opening our eyes to the truth of who He is and who we are in Him. We also know that the Lamb, we find mentioned 28 different times all through the book of Revelation, is meant to be understood as Jesus. Jesus is our lamp then. The Lamb being the lamp. That's kind of a word play there. But that's, this, that's what this is for us. Jesus, who is the Lamb, is also the lamp, our light. If you've ever been out in the wild out here, on a moonless, cloudy night, you know just how dark it can be around here. There's no finding your way. The darkness is overwhelming. But as the prophet declared in Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And this is why Isaiah is then quoted in Matthew 4-16, in reference to Jesus beginning his ministry as he proclaims the good news of the kingdom of God, the light has shone in the darkness. We also see evidence of this same idea in Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, where it says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Does that sound familiar? It's the same language that's used in Revelation and in verse 24 specifically, that of nations and kings being drawn into the light of the Lord in this new Jerusalem setting. Now, this might seem confusing, but consider this. Have people from all kinds of nations and ethnic backgrounds been drawn into the light of the Lord because of Jesus? Yes. Have there been kings and rulers drawn into the light of the Lord because of Jesus? If this is supposed to be strictly about some 
way off future event at the end of time. Why is it so, why so much of it already here? There's a theologian that I learned about in seminary who helped me sort of understand and make sense of all this. Uh, his name is Anthony Herkema, and he was basically came up with this idea that is best summarized this way. Already, not yet. It's real simple, right? Already, not yet. And it can be most clearly seen, I think, in Romans 8, where Paul explained in verse 15 that we have already received the spirit of adoption as children of God. We've already received it. And then he went on in verse 23 to say that we eagerly await our adoption as children of God by way of our bodily resurrection. Already, not yet, right? And this is why we consistently talk about the resurrection life of Jesus being alive in and through the Holy Spirit right now, in, inside of us. Even though we know that we will be fully resurrected when Jesus returns, we've already got the first part of that is alive in us. And this is the life the Holy Spirit gives birth to within us that offers us access to God's Sabbath rest now. Even though we have not fully entered it as we will when Jesus returns. Now in verse 25, we see that this new Jerusalem has gates but that they're never shut. In the ancient world, cities such as Jerusalem were fortified against attack. Uh, they were surrounded by a wall with various gates that could be closed and barred in the event of enemies showing up with hostile intentions. New Jerusalem having gates implies that it also has a wall as well. And we've talked about this in parallel terms several weeks ago. As a quick reminder, Jesus is the good shepherd who creates a secure place for the sheep and brings them through the gate into that secure place. The walls aren't meant to keep out the sheep, only the predators. In a sense, the walls of the New Jerusalem serve this same purpose. So let's unpack this for, for just a second. If we are the New Jerusalem, until Jesus returns and finalizes his kingdom, if that's us, then we have walls and gates in place to keep us secure as well. And let me make a quick point about this. Too many Christians have taken this to mean that we're safe from any kind of harm. But that's not how this works. As we saw several weeks ago, we are safe from any form of evil that would snatch us away from Jesus. But that doesn't mean we won't face hard times and persecution possibly even violence for the sake of the kingdom. Our connection to, with the voice of the martyrs, the, the group that we regularly interact with, that reminds us of that constantly, the stories of the different people who face all the different things that we don't face. But no amount of being called names or being harassed or being beaten or jailed or even killed for our faith will ever snatch us away from the loving hands of our Savior. We are forever secure in him. The walls will stand. So circling back to verse 25, the gates then are always open. And this echoes what we saw in Hebrews where the author consistently talked about how people should enter God's Sabbath rest because there is still time. And the reality is that anyone can enter. 
Anyone can find peace in God's Sabbath rest. That's why the gates are open. It's an open invitation from the king to any and all who would come and find rest. But then look at verse 26. Here we find that nothing unclean will enter, neither will anything detestable or false. So even though the doorway is open and anyone can enter, not everyone does. Some choose their own way. Some make the same choice as those from that story in Exodus, those who refused to trust the Lord and then died in the desert. They, they choose to stay outside doing things their way. They could come in, but they don't want to. Or they want to come in, but they want to keep doing things their way, which is not an option. Think about it this way. If you're invited to someone's house, you don't go in and start acting like you live there. You don't start rearranging everything. You don't tell them how to run their household. This is the problem. In, in order to enter the gates of the New Jerusalem and into God's Sabbath rest, the one thing required is humbleness, <clears throat> humility, a recognition of who we are and where we are, and, and a willingness to leave our way behind, to check it at the door. But we try to smuggle it in, don't we? We try to enter God's Sabbath rest while dragging all our baggage with us. It just doesn't work. Why are we so attached to that stuff anyway? The stuff that's killing us. Why, why do we so desperately want to think, hang on to things that are draining the life right out of us? Why don't we toss that stuff and run inside? Because of pride. Because we think we know better than anyone else, including God. I mean, isn't that what happened in the garden? I mean, sure, the serpent was being tricky. But who was it that thought they could make the call instead of listening to their creator? That was us. It was Adam and Eve, but we did the same thing. And, and nothing has changed from then to now. This is why this warning exists here. Because we are prideful and stubborn and we still want to do things our way even though our way is the reason that we hurt ourselves and each other. All the time that's passed since the beginning and we still have not learned our lesson. We somehow think we will succeed where the rest of humanity has failed. That we will figure it out on our own. Or, or, we just don't care. And both of these mindsets are deadly. They steal our life and they leave us a husk of what we are created to be. But this story is called the good news for a reason. Our pride and stubbornness don't have to be the end of the story. We can lay them down at the gate and enter God's rest. And look at what happens if we do. Moving into chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, we discover a river and a tree, both 
offering life. Now, I know it's been a little while, but we talked back in January about how the river represents the Holy Spirit, about how Jesus clarified this in John 7, 37 through 39, saying the Spirit flows from the throne. We also discussed the tree and how it is the eternal life God offers that brings healing and wholeness. And as I said then, we are the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and we are responsible for being where the water flows and the tree grows. Not by trying our best to be good, but by surrendering ourselves to the Holy Spirit so that we will experience healing and then offer it to others. And in offering healing, we will necessarily offer Sabbath rest. Those two things go hand in hand. They are what we find waiting for us when we enter the doorway that Jesus has opened into God's kingdom. Now, when we found out that my foot was broken, we found a specialist in Midland to address the problem. And they were initially recommended to us by the urgent care people that we'd gone to see. And then we saw the specialist and, and we found reviews online uh, that told us how great they are. We went and had our appointment. And they then recommended us to the surgeon in Lubbock. as a foot surgeon specialist who's been doing this for over 30 years. And we went online and read all their reviews and all their things and, and found out. And uh, I posted something on Facebook about it. And different people who had interacted with that particular doctor in that uh, specialist group, they were responding to me. And they were telling me how great that was. They were recommending and endorsing this. One person even credited uh, Dr. Stevenson, my doctor, with still being able to walk and exercise, which I think is great. That's what I'm hoping for. In a way, though, this is what the church should be like. We should be recommended by people for our warmth and hospitality because their experiences with us are full of peace and healing and restfulness. When they come here, that's what they get. When people encounter us, they, they will encounter God. They will encounter Jesus and the Holy Spirit in us. And they should feel encouraged and energized, not judged and condemned. This is what it looks like for us to be the new Jerusalem in the present. Until Jesus returns and sets everything right. And this is what it means to have the Holy Spirit flowing through us like the water of life, even as we are given life by the tree and its healing leaves. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been told a lot of churches, uh, I've been to, sorry, a lot of churches where I didn't experience peace or healing or rest, where Sabbath was a day and nothing more. A day to act like we have it all together in front of others and scowl at those on the outside who don't. A day to sing of God's love while ignoring his mercy. A day to pretend we are something we are not, just like the hypocritical Pharisees. And I've been a part of that kind of thing and it was in no way restful at all. It was always work, keeping up appearances, maintaining a status, 
And that's why I'm here before you this morning confessing straight out that I am broken. I'm not a good person. I don't have it all together. I'm a person who has been hurt and who has hurt others. I'm a person who has acted irrationally. I've struggled with anger and fear and doubt, and I've made my share of bad choices. When someone looks at me, they should see a man who knows that he desperately needs Jesus. A man who desperately needs the Sabbath rest that God provides and the healing that comes with it. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, this is true for all of us. I don't understand why so many Christians act like they have it all figured out. Like they are good enough to shake their fingers at others and cast shame on them for the sin in their lives. I learned in Romans 3.23, maybe you did as well, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions there. I'm part of all, y'all are part of all. But it's up to us to show people the doorway. It's not up to me or, or any of us to look down on others. We show them the doorway that Jesus has opened and the Sabbath rest that awaits those who enter. And it's up to do so, we have, we have to do so by embracing that ourselves, by living in the Sabbath rest that God has provided in Jesus and his kingdom, by leaving all our baggage outside the gate, in spite of how tenaciously we hold on to all of it. I mean, isn't that what we really desperately want? To have all the hurt and the guilt and the shame removed? To be free? To have another chance? To have an identity that isn't built on a foundation of lies? And to be able to have a clear conscience? The good news of Jesus is that we can. You can, I can, all of us. We can find rest in him. We can lay down the burdens of our past and find rest in the finished work of Jesus. Now in verses three through five, John echoed some of what he had already written to help reemphasize it, that Jewish way of parallel emphasis and he's promising that there would be nothing accursed in this new Jerusalem. That we would worship the Lord as we see his face. That all our other means of light will be so pale in comparison to the light of the Lord that it would be like they didn't even exist at all. And finally, that we will reign with the Lord forever, which was the original intent in the garden. Have dominion. That's the point. For me, the biggest question that arose out of these verses, uh, these last few verses, was where is the Holy Spirit's throne? I remember thinking that. I read this passage years ago, and I was wondering, why is there a throne for the Father and one for the Son, but there's no throne for the Spirit? Where's the Spirit's throne? And I've read some commentaries on this down through the years, and I've yet to find one that really made sense of what John wrote here in verse three about the throne of God and of the Lamb. But as I've prayed and considered this, I was reminded that the Holy Spirit resides in us. 
The Spirit's throne is in our inmost being. In the core of who we are and of who we are becoming. And this has already become a reality now. But it will continue to be a reality as we live into the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem. And when Jesus returns, as we celebrate and enjoy God's ultimate Sabbath with our Savior, the throne of our hearts will be just as full as the other thrones from the one who gives us rest. Will you pray with me?